I don't know how you learn best, but for me, I, I learn by watching. And so whether it's golf or uh, my mom's super into tennis, so trying to love my mom well, I, I try to pick up some tennis. But I don't learn a, as well by somebody saying, okay, this is what you do, and here's the swing, and here's the mechanics, and so now go do it. I learn by watching them do it and then going, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do, and then translating what they do, what I see them do, and then into to what I should do. It's the same thing with assembling something. I, I prefer the pictures over the words. If you're going to tell me to put the hex bolt with the octagonal nut in the bolt 17Z, in the, I'm, I'm lost. I'm done. But if you're going to show me the picture, especially if the picture matches the size of the bolt, which they do a lot of times in these instruction manuals now, and I can hold it up and go, yep, that's the right one, then I'm good to go. But I like to see something done and, and learn from watching it done. Well, in our passage that we're going to look at this morning, that's exactly what we see. Last week, we talked about, hey, meet Jesus. And we saw John introduce us from a 30,000-foot view to the, the person of Christ, the, the logos of God, the word of God. We looked at, at his identity, that he is divine, that he was the awaited one, that he was the unexpected one in the way that he came and why he came. Well, now that we've been introduced to Jesus and we've met Jesus, now the call in the passage before us this morning is this, follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus is a, is a tall order. In fact, it can be a little bit ambiguous at times. And we talk as, as Christians about, well, we need to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. We need to follow Christ. Right, hey, how are you doing with your walk with the Lord? Meaning, how are you doing following Jesus? And that can be a little bit unclear, ambiguous, amorphous to us as far as what does that actually look like? Well, this morning in, in, John's, in John's text of, of the rest of chapter 1, we're going to see three examples of at least three key components to following Jesus. And so we'll see the first one here in verses 19 through 34. So take your Bibles if you're not already there and, and begin with me in verse 19. John says this. He says, this is the testimony of John. Now again, whenever we see the name John in the gospel of John, we're dealing not with John the author, but John the Baptist. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. Back in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we looked at this last week. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Well, we just read John's witness about the light. It's what these opening six, seven verses are here that we just read together. But it begins with this Jewish delegation being sent to find out what John is doing and who he is. Anytime we read the Jews in John's gospel, it's typically not a, a positive connotation. It usually refers to the, the opponents of Christ, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And so John the Baptist is out baptizing people across the Jordan, and he's causing so much of a, a stir and so much fervor among the people that the, the Jews have to take notice. Those in Jerusalem are going, what is happening out in the, the Judean wilderness here? What is happening out at the Jordan River? What's going on? And so they send a, an envoy. And this envoy comes to John, and they ask him this question, who are you? And hidden within that question at least our implications because of John's response that they're asking, hey, are you the guy? Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? The one we've been expecting? Are you him? Tell us plainly if you are. And John answers very plainly and says right off the bat, no, I am not the Christ. John was not there to claim glory for himself, but to glorify Jesus. John was not there to, to put himself in the spotlight, but to get out of the spotlight. So right off the bat, immediately, he wants to make sure that they understand, I'm not the guy. I'm not the Christ. So then they ask him another question then. Well, then, if, if you're not the, the Christ, are you Elijah? He says to them, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not Elijah either. The question about Elijah comes back all the way from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there was this eschatological expectation that Elijah the prophet was going to precede the coming of the Messiah. And so they go to John and they say, Okay, well then if you are not the Messiah, well then you must be Elijah. But John answers them and says, I'm not Elijah. We maybe have a little bit of an issue here. Maybe you were reading this and even said, wait a minute. But I thought in the other Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, Jesus looks at John and, and refers to John and says that J John is Elijah the prophet. So how is John denying that he's Elijah, but Jesus says that he was Elijah? What do we do with this? Well, John, notice in those other Gospels, never claims to be Elijah. And so I think what we see here is John, in his humility, was not there to claim any sort of title, identity, position, prestige for himself. And so even though he was fulfilling that role, fulfilling Malachi 4, 5, that, that he was that prophet to come, to prepare the way for Jesus, that he was the, the second coming, so to speak, of Elijah, John was not about to presume that upon himself. Jesus identified him that way in the other Gospels, but John himself and his humility was not about to say, yeah, that's who I am, I'm that guy. Again, why? Because the core reality of John's existence was to magnify somebody else, not himself. It was to exalt Jesus, not himself. Well, so they say then, okay, well, if you're not Elijah, then you must be the prophet. The prophet. Well, that's a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, again, messianic expectation here, because in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses records, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. 
that this is going to be the better Moses. In fact, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this same motif when he's proving and arguing that Jesus is better than Moses. And so they ask John the Baptist then, okay, well, you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, so therefore it only follows that you must be the prophet for you to be doing all of these things that you're doing out here. John says again, no, I'm sorry, guys, I'm not the prophet either. So then they say, what, what are you doing then? Who are you? Well, John does take one title to himself, and that is, he says, I'm the voice. He says, verse 23, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He's saying that voice that Isaiah prophesied about, that's who I am. But even that is, is, is humility, right? Because this is not a title, this is not a name, this is not an office, this is simply a voice. John says, you want to know who I am? I'm just a voice. I'm a voice sent to prepare you for a greater one that's coming after me. I'm a voice sent to prepare you for this next one. In fact, they go on and they say, verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. By the way, sidebar, anytime you see in John's gospel these parentheses, it's because John was writing to a distinctly Greek audience. So they wouldn't have had the background and the knowledge of the Jewish system. They wouldn't have had the background and the knowledge of the Hebrew language or the Aramaic language. So John sometimes has to explain things as he's writing the gospel. And so we'll see that. And that happens in verse 24. They had been sent from the Pharisees. Jewish readers reading the Jews sent a delegation. They would have already understood this. But the Greeks, much like you and I, they were sitting there not clear as to who this was that John was conversing with. Well, this delegation is from the Pharisees. They're frustrated at this point because they're saying, okay, you're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. You're this voice. But we have to go back to the Pharisees and give them some sort of account. And you're out here baptizing people. John, what are you doing? Why are you baptizing? Which is their next question. Now, baptism was not something foreign in the Jewish culture. But being baptized by someone was foreign in the Jewish culture. Baptism was a a self-performed act at this time. If you've been to Israel, you've seen the ritual baths around in different places. People would enter those themselves to purify themselves, to cleanse themselves before going in for worship. So for John to be there and John to be the one actually baptizing others, they realize, okay, you're taking on some sort of authority to yourself. And what is this authority all about? Who are you? Why are you baptizing? Well, John, again, is trying to get himself out of the way. He says, basically, don't worry about that. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm baptized. I'm baptizing with water. But there's somebody else that you guys need to know about. He says, there's one that stands among you who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, verse 27, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I don't know whether Jesus was there presently. We know from the rest of this encounter that John has already baptized Jesus. So the baptism of Christ has already happened. So I don't think Jesus is standing there because I think Jesus is where at this point by the chronology of the other gospels. Where is he? He's in the wilderness being tempted right now. Remember after he comes up from the baptism, it says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So I don't think Jesus is here. So this is, he's among you. John's speaking generically that he's here. He's arrived. He's on the scene. And he's the one that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. You guys are worried about me? It's like David with Saul, remember? He says, when Saul is chasing him in the wilderness, he says, why are you pursuing me? I'm, I'm a flea, I'm a dead dog. Why are you concerned with me, right? John is, is basically asking that question. Why are you concerned with me? You need to be concerned with somebody else. In fact, it says the next day there, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming. 
So this delegation leaves and returns frustrated because they, they still don't quite understand. But those that are around him, the next day John is there and he sees Jesus approaching. Again, why is this possible? Well, he's out in the wilderness area of Judea at this point, the wilderness area where Jesus would have been around and would have been enduring his own temptation. John sees him coming towards him and he says, behold, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's a massive statement, isn't it? And it's one that you and I read and we immediately think of what? The cross. But we have a problem. John the Baptist was not expecting the cross. But he makes this uh, amazing statement about Jesus. And then he goes on and we'll, we'll come back to that statement just momentarily here. He says, this is the one. This is the one I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. Talking about the preeminence and the eternality of Jesus here. It says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing that he might be revealed to Israel. John's saying, you want to know why I'm here and why I'm doing what I'm doing? I'm doing this all for the purpose of revealing Jesus. Well, what does it mean that I did not know him? Wasn't this his cousin? Yes. But what John is saying there is he's saying, I didn't realize who this was. I didn't get it. I didn't understand that this was the Messiah, but it was revealed to me. How was it revealed to me? Well, John describes, this is as close to the baptism of Jesus that we get in the gospel of John. It says, the heavens were opened up and God told me the one that you see the spirit descend on it and remain, that is the one. John says, I witnessed that and this is him. Man, what do we see in these opening verses of our passage? We see John doing everything that he can to get himself out of the way so that Jesus might be glorified and exalted. So we're talking about following Jesus. That is a key component of what it means to follow Jesus. Point number one this morning is this. Sorry, my, the presentation's the one from last week up on the screen, so I'm just gonna give you the points verbally. Follow John's example of humbly exalting Jesus. Follow John's example of humbly exalting Jesus. If you're college football fans, then last weekend was the most wonderful time of the year, Right? because it was kickoff weekend. And there were some amazing games that happened last weekend. It, Alabama and Miami, which was over from the, the kickoff, but just an amazing performance from Alabama. I mean, everybody was going, how are they going to bounce back? What are they going to do? What's it going to be? And they just obliterated them. They were Alabama, right? Or some of you may be rejoicing in this. Others of you may be cringing at this. But UCLA, with their victory over LSU, there's some clapping out there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, again, an amazing performance, an unexpected performance. Unranked UCLA comes in and knocks off ranked LSU, right? Or if you watch the Notre Dame-Florida State game, even though Florida State lost, there was the story of Mackenzie Milton and his comeback. The former great UCF quarterback that was setting all kinds of records blew out his knee, one of the most horrific knee injuries ever to take place in college football. Doctor, surgeon said, there's no way you'll ever play again. You should just hang it up now. They even almost had to amputate his leg. And yet he comes back comes back, leads a touchdown drive, and it's the only reason that Florida State was even remotely close to being in that game. Well, we see all those, and we hear about all that, and we encounter all that, we watch all that, and it's so easy for us to talk about that stuff, isn't it? It's easy for you to run into your neighbor, getting the mail together, and say, hey, did you see the Florida State game? Hey, did you see the UCLA game? Hey, did you see how bad Alabama crushed Miami? It's so easy for us to talk about stuff like that. Why is it not that easy for us to exalt Jesus to other people? He's way more impressive than any of that stuff. Way more impressive. And John says, behold, look it, here he is. The, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I said we'd come back to that. 
You know, in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew's gospel there records that John, while in prison, was in prison wondering, hey, is this really the guy? Even though he had been so sure of it at this point in time, in the opening of John's gospel, even though at this point in time he said, look, he's the one. I saw the spirit descend on him and remain on him. This is the guy. Here he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is now in prison. Jesus is in the midst of his earthly ministry, but John's going, why have you not deposed Rome? Why have you not set up the kingdom? What is going on? And he sends a delegation to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you really the guy? Well, why do I bring that up? I bring that up to show that when John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world, he did not see the cross in view at all. So we have a problem. What did he mean by this? Well, there are some options that have been proposed. One of them is that he is the gentle lamb of Jeremiah eleven nineteen. The lamb led to slaughter there in Jeremiah eleven nineteen. But the problem there is there's no mention of taking away sin at that point. Others have said, well, he's the scapegoat. That's what John was thinking of. John the Baptist was thinking of the scapegoat, the day of atonement, taking away sin. Okay, the taking away sin works there. But the problem is that was a goat, not a lamb. And John didn't say, behold, the goat of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Others have said, okay, well, this is the lamb that was caught in the thicket from Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham went to offer Isaac. And yes, that was a substitutionary lamb, but that was not an atoning lamb. There was no concept of the removal of sin there. Okay, well, then maybe it's just in general, John was thinking of the guilt offerings that were offered in the temple sacrificial system. Maybe, but that was typically the blood of bulls and goats, not necessarily the blood of lambs that was offered for guilt offerings. Okay, well, then it's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In fact, in Aramaic, which is what John most likely was speaking at the time, the word for lamb and servant both sound similar to one another. They're homonyms. But the problem is John's gospel is written in Greek. And in writing it in Greek, John recorded the word for lamb, not servant. And even still, you have this problem of the fact that John did not expect that Jesus was going to be a suffering servant, but a glorious Messiah. So I don't think that fits either. Well, Others have said this is a, a reference to the apocalyptic lamb. And there is writing, Jewish apocalyptic literature, some of which may be pre-Christian, in other words, before the time of Christ, we're not certain on that, that references an apocalyptic lamb, that God's judgment will take place through a, a glorious and conquering lamb in the end. And that, that may be, in fact, it's possible that when he says, when John said, who takes away the sins of the world, that John the, the Baptist didn't think of that from atonement because this is not the word for atoning, removal. This is simply the word for, for taking away, for, for removing, not satisfying God's wrath, but simply taking away. This is not propitiation. This is just removing sin. So it could have been that John was thinking about this from a judgment perspective. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. He's going to take away the sin in opposition to God. It's all going to go away because the Messiah is here. Maybe it's that. I think if we're going to take anything, that may be the, the best option or this last one, which is just simply that John spoke better than he understood under the prompting of the Spirit. That this was an announcement that John made under the prompting of the Spirit, not fully understanding exactly what he meant. But certainly as John the Apostle recorded this for us, he understood what it meant. As we read it, we understand what it means. 
It's an exaltation of Jesus. He is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He is the great suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Yes, he is that replacement, that substitute for us of Genesis chapter 22. He is the Passover lamb. And he's worthy of our exaltation and our praise if we're gonna follow him. John does that in verse 30. This is he, this is the one of, said, of whom I said after me. John was older than Jesus. So he's saying, look, by years after me comes one who ranks before me. That would have been a paradigm shift for this time in this culture because this was built on the idea of the firstborn. The firstborn ranked higher than any others in a family. Well, John said, yeah, I was born before him, but he's greater than I am. Why? Because he was before me. Now he's talking chronology from an eternal scale. He is preeminent. He is eternal. He is first. This whole mentality of John's in worshiping Jesus, exalting Jesus, is the mentality that John will clarify for us in John chapter 3, verse 30, where he makes perhaps his most famous statement about Jesus, which is that he must, what? Increase, but I must decrease. Man, that's following Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. So, man, as you think about the different spheres of your lives, how can that be your aim today even? As you think about work, as you think about home, as you think about your neighborhood, as you think about running errands in our community, your identity as a citizen of this country, how can your aim be, let me exalt Christ and let me get myself out of the way? Because following Jesus is so much about worshiping Christ, glorifying Jesus. In fact, in the Reformation, there were the five solas. Well, one of the solas was sola deo gloria, which means to God alone be glory. To God alone be glory. This was one of the battle cries of the Reformation. It needs to be the battle cry of our lives. It says, you think, men, about loving your wife? How can you exalt Christ and get yourself out of the way? As you think about parenting your kids, how can you exalt Christ and get yourself out of the way? As you think about going to work today, the meetings that you're going to have today, how can you exalt Christ and get yourself out of the way? As you think about doing your duty as a citizen, how can you exalt Christ and get yourself out of the way? As you think about running into your neighbor at the mailbox, how can you exalt Christ and get yourself out of the way? He must increase and I must decrease. John kept that up in verse 35. The next day, so now we're two days later, he said, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. His disciples at this point, are those that had been with him for who knows how long at this point, at minimum months. And John had invested in them and poured into them and discipled them and taught them and prepared them. And they were John's followers, right? They were John's guys. When John was walking around, they were walking with him. And yet John is all too eager to say, see that guy? Go follow him. He's better than I am. And that's what he says. Behold the Lamb of God. Again, he repeats it. Then the two of his disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John understood what we need to understand. That it's better for people to follow Jesus than to follow us. If somebody's going to follow us, they only need to follow us to the extent that we're following Christ. Right? That's what, what Paul said. Be imitators of me as I imitate God, as I imitate Christ. And that needs to be us as well. So John is looking at them going, hey, don't, 
Don't hang with me. Go follow him. He's the better guy here. Guys, I misspoke earlier, and I just need to apologize and clarify. I said I think Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, but I don't think the context of the rest of our chapter bears that out. And so I, I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I think Jesus has already been tempted. I think now he's back, and he's beginning his, his recruitment of his disciples. So scratch what I said. Forget that. So often I pray before I come up and, and preach in my office, Lord, help, me, help them to forget anything wrong I said. That's something to just forget about, okay? <laughs> Boom, poof, gone. And I was thinking about that as I was saying, as I was preaching earlier, and I'm going, that's wrong, what I just said. So now there, I'm clarifying it out of the way, strike that, because Jesus is walking by, and John's like, hey, go follow them, and Jesus didn't have any followers in the wilderness, okay? Now, back to the text. John says, go follow them. They're better, right? My son, Josh, has started, up, started to play golf, and uh, it's fun, and I enjoy it. And I, I take him out with me, and, and we go to the Lake Forest Part 3, and uh, I've been able to teach him some of the basics, you know, how to swing and how to hold the club and which clubs to use in what circumstances. And I've been teaching him how to keep score. Here's a birdie, here's a par, but more often, here's a bogey, double bogey, and triple bogey, right? <laughs> but I've basically gotten to the place with Josh that I, I can't take him any further than I've taken him at this point. I don't have the skill and the expertise to take his game beyond what it, what it is right now. He needs somebody better to follow now than me in that regard. Well, that's John with these guys. John's looking at them going, I've done my job with you. I've taken you as far as I can take you. I've prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. There he is. Go follow him. Stop following me. Go follow him. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, what are you seeking? Uh, there's layers to that question, right? On the surface, it's just the basic question. What are you seeking? But then underneath that layer, it's, it's what are you really after here? What type of Messiah are you really looking to find? Again, a question that they didn't understand on the surface, but I think the apostle understood as he was writing and recording all of this. They said to him, Rabbi, which meant teacher, a term that later in the Jewish culture became an ordained office. But at this point in time, it was just a title of respect for somebody who was in a position of teaching or discipling other people. So they say, Rabbi. Again, John clarifies because he's writing to Greeks and they're not going to understand the word Rabbi. He says, which means teacher. Where are you staying? That word for staying is the word in the Greek, abide. If you remember, the word abide takes on a greater significance later in John's gospel, doesn't it? John does this. John plays with layers here as he's recording the gospel for us. Even the recording of the announcement of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On the surface layer, John the Baptist and those hearing him didn't understand that. But John's now recording it knowing that those who read it on the backside of the cross are now going to understand it at a much deeper level. Teacher, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? We want to stay with you. For these two in the immediate, they just wanted to know where he was hanging out because they wanted to get to know him more. But for you and I, we hear that question, where are you staying? Man, we need to ask that question of Jesus if we're going to follow him. Hey, where are you staying? Because we want to abide with you. He said to them, verse 39, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, meets Jesus, hangs out with Jesus, hears John, knows what John's purpose was because he had been one of John's followers, knew that John was there to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, heard John say, there he is, go follow him. Imagine being Andrew for a minute. All of the expectation, thousands of years, there's the guy, go follow him. 
Imagine the excitement and the, the, the anticipation and the eagerness. And then you spend time with him. And, and I, I, my mind goes to the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, right? On the, the, towards the end of Jesus' life, Luke 24. When he shows up and they're, don't you know they crucified this guy? We thought he was the Messiah. He explains the scripture. He spends the day with them, right? This is the, him spending the day with two disciples on the front end of his ministry. But I got to imagine there was a similar burning in their hearts the way that the two in, in Emmaus felt of, man, this is it. This is the guy. This is the guy that we've been waiting for. So Andrew, in all this, this excitement, goes and finds Simon Peter and says to him, we have found the Messiah. Again, John explains it. For all of you Greeks out there, that means the Christ, the anointed one. We found the one we've been waiting for. And he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas or Cephas, which means... Peter, again, these two, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, brought up in a Jewish home, brought up being taught the stories of the Old Testament, brought up awaiting and expecting the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, and now he's there. We have found the Messiah, and we read a statement like that with, without much passion or emotion, don't we? And, they found, and he found his brother and said, we've found the Messiah, and... Peter went to Jesus and Jesus told him, you're no longer Simon, but now your name is Cephas. That's a weird name. I don't know why he would call him Cephas. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. What time is it? When do I need to be done with my DBR? Like this is a massive moment in, in Jewish history. This is a massive moment in world history. And we need to get the, the picture here. This is way bigger than any news that you've ever heard. This is way bigger than finding out the election was a fraud and Trump won. Way bigger than that huge right now. And I'm just saying that because I know how many of you guys are passionate about that out there. Well, take your passionate about that and, and ratchet it up to get passionate about Jesus being the Messiah. That's something that 100 years from now matters. And Andrew goes to Peter and says, we found the Messiah. Man, we need to have that same eagerness and excitement because he was this, the, the need in first century Israel was the same as our need today. And we needed the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. We needed that. They needed that. And, man, we know what that looks like because we know the cross. How much more excited about Jesus should we be than Andrew was? And yet are we? Man, if you want to follow Jesus, it's not just about exalting Jesus. But second, it's about, it's about proclaiming Jesus. Follow Andrew's eager example of proclaiming Jesus, saying, We have found the Messiah. Pastor Mike so often talks about the lifeboats on the Titanic. The ship is going down. If you knew where the lifeboats were, you'd be running throughout the ship saying, the lifeboats are over here. Get to the lifeboats. If you walked into the dining room, people were still sitting down for, for tea and listening to the band play, and the ship is sinking, you're going to say, get up. Come with me. You fools, don't you understand you're going to perish if you stay here? But we're comfortable. We like this food. We paid for the all-you-can-eat buffet on the ship. This is my favorite song, right? That, that's what we're obsessed with in the world. Yeah, but, but I want to watch my kids grow up. But look at my 401k. I'm about to retire. Yeah, but, but what if they don't like me after that? What if I don't get invited to the block party? What if my, job, my boss fires me? Man, eternity's at stake. Imagine if Andrew never told Peter 
about Jesus because he was afraid that Peter would reject him. Or imagine if Andrew never told Peter about Jesus because he thought someone else would tell him. Or imagine if Andrew never told Peter about Jesus because he thought, you know what, if predestination's right, someone, he's going to be saved anyways. What if Andrew never told Peter about Jesus because he thought, I don't have the gift of evangelism. What if Andrew never told Peter about Jesus because he said, I, I've never been trained about how to tell somebody that this is the Messiah. Okay, Peter, let's, or Andrew, let's do some training. This is the Messiah. Repeat after me. Great, you're trained. Go tell him. What if Andrew never told Peter because, you know what, at family gatherings, we just don't talk religion and politics. I know that's absurd, but those are some of the objections that we give for not proclaiming Jesus. But man, what's at stake for those around us is what was at stake for Peter. Is there going to be another Peter? No, there's not going to be another Peter. God's not going to raise somebody else up and another day of Pentecost that's going to write more Bible. The Bible's done. But man, God could still do pretty powerful things to the unbelievers that are in your life if they would hear the gospel, repent and believe and come to Jesus. Think about how massively significant Peter is in the grand scheme of what God was going to do through building his church. And if Andrew had never gone to him, the loss that we would have experienced. Your neighbor, God might want to be doing amazing things through your neighbor right now. And for us to answer the call to follow Jesus is to answer the call to be his ambassador, is to represent Christ, is to preach the gospel, is to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so as we seek to capture some of this eagerness, we need to remember that eternity is at stake for them. And that tomorrow's not guaranteed for you or for them. And that we are Christ's ambassadors. You know, there's times in our neighborhoods where our neighbor will call us over and say, hey, look at this new car that I just got. It does this, it does that, it does everything else. By the way, last weekend, Tesla got a bad rap, didn't it? I'm not here to do that for you guys, okay? Or he'll call us over and say, look at this brand new piece of lawn equipment that I got. Or he'll say, look at this brand new tool that I got. And he's excited about it to show it off. Man, can we be excited about Jesus to show him off? Hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? There's a pastor in Dallas. His name is Matt Chandler. And he, uh, part of his testimony is, is he was a freshman on the football team and, uh, of his high school there, and he was my size. So you can imagine how that went. There's a reason he's a pastor today and not a, not a football player. But he had this big upperclassman come up next to him and was in the locker next to him and uh, shut his locker door and looked at him. And Matt said, okay, this is it. This is where I get stuffed in my locker and my life ends. But instead, this gigantic behemoth of an upperclassman looked down at Matt and said, hey, I need to tell you about Jesus. You tell me what works for you. And God used that to bring that guy to Christ. And now he's preaching the gospel to people. Who is it that you need to make an appointment with to share Christ with? to follow that example. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So it makes sense that Andrew and Peter would have said, hey, let's go up to our hometown so we can find some other people because we know some people there that would be excited to find out that you're the guy. So they go, well, there's some that want to throw a flag on the play again here because they're saying, well, in the other gospels, the calling of the disciples looks different than it does in John's gospel here. 
Because Jesus walks by and calls them and they're in their boats and they're fishing and then they leave everything and they come and follow him. But here, there's a different recording of what it looks like of them coming to follow Jesus. So what gives? Well, here's what we need to notice. Aside from Philip, Jesus hasn't called anyone in John's recording here. Aside from Philip, the others have willingly come to Jesus because somebody else has said, go follow him. So the formal call has not happened yet. The formal call is when Jesus walks by and says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In fact, as Carson points out, it makes a whole lot more sense for them to leave their dad in the boat with the nets and all the gear and go follow this guy if they've already been spending some time around him. I don't know if that ever struck you as weird and odd for Jesus to walk by and, and to look at them and say, hey, follow me. And they're like, all right, see you later, dad. And dropping everything, their livelihood and everything else and going to follow this guy that they had never met before. And we write that off in our minds of, well, it was God, so it makes sense. No, I... <laughs> Again, they didn't know who this was. Case in point, Luke 24. But if they had already been spending time with him, like John's describing here, and then Jesus gives the formal call to say, okay, now let's go. It's time for us to go do some ministry together. Then he calls them and they go, I know him. I've been around him. I, I, this, yes, I've been waiting for this. Let's go. So I don't think they're at odds with each other. I think we can harmonize what's going on in John's gospel and the others. But in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. So Philip call, is called by Jesus. He says, yeah, I'm in. So Philip is following Jesus now. And he, like Andrew, says, I gotta, I gotta tell somebody. So he goes to find Nathanael. And he finds Nathanael and says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I think Philip was a preacher because he basically said the same thing Andrew said, but used way more words to say it. Because he basically said, we found the Messiah. But instead he said, we found the one that Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. If there's anything that a preacher does, he says too many words to say something that is a little bit simpler and plainer with less words, right? Anyways, Nathaniel says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's just incredulity, right? If you've ever driven to Arizona, you drive through two towns that don't get a good name around here. One of them is Blythe, that is Pastor Mike's favorite town, right? Well, the other one right on the other side of the border of Arizona and California is Quartzite. Quartzite has a Love's gas station and a Carl's Jr. with Tesla charging stations. That's it. That's Quartzite. So in some ways, it'd be us thinking the president of the United States is going to come out of Quartzite? What? Can anything good come out of Quartzite? Philip says, come and see. You want to find out? Come and see. Nathaniel gets up and he says, okay, fine, I'll, I'll go. He's approaching, and Jesus says this in verse 47, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says, How do you know me? Jesus is saying, You're an Israelite who wants to get to the bottom of things. You want to find things out for yourself. You're a guy of integrity, Nathaniel, or yeah, Nathaniel, because you're coming here, and you want to get to the bottom of, of whether or not I'm really the guy. Nathaniel says, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus is pulling back a little bit of the veil of his divinity and his deity here for him. Nathaniel responds and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Son of God, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, the promise of a son. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, today I've begotten you, you are my son. This is messianic in this confession here. 
And then he goes on, he says, you are the king of Israel. Again, a messianic title for Jesus. And Jesus says, you believe because of, of that? Because I said, I saw you sitting under a tree? Buckle up, dude. What you're about to see, it's going to blow your mind. It's my paraphrase. No, he says, you, you're going to see greater things than these. This is just the beginning of things. Even next week, water to wine, right? You're going to see the, the, the crippled healed. You're going to see demons cast out. You're going to see me walk on water. You're going to see me calm a storm. You're going to see this guy die. He's going to be in the grave. He's going to stinketh. And then I'm going to call his name. He's going to come hobbling out. I'm going to raise him from the dead. Oh, speaking of death, you're going to see me die on the cross. And then I'm going to raise three days later. You're impressed because I said I saw you under the fig tree? Just wait. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending. The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a reference back to the, the dream of Jacob in the ladder. And the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. God's revelation coming down to earth, right? Well, now there's no ladder because Jesus says that he is the ladder. So the angels of God, the angelos, the messengers, the ones carrying the message, the divine revelation of God, now is realized in and through the person of Christ. So you, you're impressed because I said I saw you under the tree. Again, just some clarification here. If you look at Matthew's account of the list of the disciples, it's Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. Mark chapter 3, 16 through 19. Luke chapter 6, 13 through 16. In those lists of the disciples, Nathaniel's name is not listed there. So we say, well, what gives? Again, was there a, a mistake? No, there wasn't. Because there's another name that is listed there. And it's connected with Philip. In fact, in Matthew's account and Mark's account, it's Philip and, does anybody know the name? Bartholomew. Philip and Bartholomew. And he's listed in, in immediate context. And in Luke's gospel, it doesn't say Philip and Bartholomew, but it's Philip, comma, Bartholomew, and then going on. So because of those connections, it's likely that Nathaniel was the, the proper name of Bartholomew. Bartholomew, bar means son of Ptolemaeus. Son of Ptolemaeus, Right? Like Simon Barjona. It would have been as if Simon was known as Barjona in the Gospels instead of Peter. And so here you have Nathaniel, who was probably Nathaniel Bar Ptolemaeus, Nathaniel Bartholomew. So does that change your life radically? No. But if anybody ever objects and says, well, look, here's an error in the Bible, you have the, the response to that now. But again, this encounter and this confession, Nathaniel didn't understand all of this, but you and I do, don't we? Why? Because we know, the, to quote Paul Harvey, what the rest of the story. Man, we've seen the greater things. For you and I, we've got it. It's here. You're never going to see anything or hear anything greater than what you see and hear in this book. This is the greatest. There's no message coming that's better than this. There's no person coming more impressive than this. There's no power that's coming that's stronger than this. And so, men, if Nathaniel was able to confess Christ knowing so little comparatively to what you and I know. And if we're going to follow Jesus, our final point this morning is this. Make sure that you've followed example, or Nathaniel's example of confessing Jesus. For some of you in this, night, in this room this morning, you've confessed certain things. You've confessed, well, I feel like I, I need church in my life. 
feel like I, I need other men in my life. I feel like I need to lead my family better. I feel like I need more moral stability. Or I feel like I need Republican values. Or I feel like I need to curry some favor with God. Or I feel like I need to appease my wife. Or I feel like I need to soothe a guilty conscience. And so that's why you're here. That's why you come to church but you haven't confessed your greatest need, which is your need for Jesus as your Lord and Savior to cleanse you from your sin, to remove your sin. Some of you are expecting Jesus to fix a broken marriage. You're expecting Jesus to be the mascot for your political cause. You're expecting Jesus to be a lucky rabbit's foot to get the promotion at work that you're angling for. But man, Jesus wants to do far more than that. And you need Jesus to do far more than that. And if you are confessing Jesus as anything less than Lord and Savior, you are not confessing Jesus at all. And so men, let me urge you, plead with you, if you have not already followed Nathaniel's example of confessing Jesus as your Savior, do that this morning. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can be forgiven. Trust that he rose from the dead so that you will one day rise from your own death to live eternally with him believe that he has given you his spirit so that you can follow him as your Lord and King. That's what it looks like to confess Jesus. Nathaniel was impressed by Jesus saying, hey, I saw you under a fig tree. Man, we need to be impressed with a different kind of tree. We need to be impressed with the tree that Christ died on for our sins, and that needs to lead us to confess Christ. In fact, you can't follow him unless you start here. You can't exalt Jesus if you haven't confessed Jesus. And you can't proclaim Jesus the way that he should be proclaimed if you haven't confessed Jesus as Savior. So again, let me press in. If you haven't done that, if you're here for any other reason other than the fact that you need Jesus as your Savior, then fix that this morning by recognizing your greatest need is for him as your Savior. There's no one better than Jesus coming. That's why John said, I'm done. I'm out. That's the guy. Go follow him. Man, I hope there's no voice that you're following in this world aside from the voice of Christ. And that any voices that you're listening to are voices that are pointing you to his. Because it's not just that we need to meet Jesus, but we need to follow Jesus as well. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that Christ came, that he is the one that was expected, the one that we needed, the, the one that fulfilled all of these prophecies, yes, and, and met all of those requirements, the one that lived a perfect life and gave that life for us so that we might be forgiven, so that our accounts might be credited with his full righteousness, so that we can have hope of living forever with him. Help us to follow him well this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.